Chapter fourteen of Audrey Craven by May Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Chapter fourteen. The next day Audrey's head was aching to some purpose. She had been going through a course of Langley Wyndham. Yesterday he had brought her his last book, London Legends, and she had sat up half the night to read it. She was to tell him what she thought of it, and her ideas were in a whirl. She stayed in bed for breakfast, excused herself from lunch, left word with the footman that she was not at home that afternoon, and sent down another message five minutes afterwards that, if by any chance Mr. Wyndham were to call, he might be admitted. Not that he's in the least likely to come after being here yesterday, she said to herself, and yet, as she sat alone in the drawing-room, she listened for the ringing of bells, the opening of doors, and the sound of footsteps on the stairs. Every five minutes she looked at the clock, and her heart kept time to its ticking. Half-past two. In any case, he wouldn't come before three, and yet, surely that was the front door-bell. No. Three o'clock. Four o'clock. He would be more likely to drop in about tea-time. Five o'clock. Tea came in on the stroke of it, and still no Wyndham. Half-past five. He had once called later than that, when he wanted to find her alone. Something told her that he would come today. He would be anxious to know what she thought of his book. She was in that state of mind when people trust in intuitions, failing positive evidence. Surely in some past state of existence she had sat in that chair, surrounded by the same objects, thinking the same thoughts, and that train of ideas had been completed by the arrival of Wyndham. Science accounts for this sensation by supposing that one half of the brain, more agile than another, jumps to its conclusion before its tardier fellow can arrive. To Audrey it was a prophecy certain of fulfilment, and all the time her head kept on aching. The poor little brain went on wandering in a maze of its own making. How truly she had, in Cousin Bella's phrase, entangled herself with Hardy, with Ted, and possibly, nay probably, with Wyndham. She saw no escape from the dreadful situation, and as a dark background to her thoughts, there hung the shadow of Hardy's return. She only realized it in these moods of reaction that followed the exaltation of the last three weeks, and to make matters worse, for the first time in her life, she was dissatisfied with herself. Not that she was in the least aware of the deterioration of her character. She took no count of the endless little meannesses and falsehoods which she was driven into by her position. Simple, straightforward action was impossible. This much was evident to her, that whatever course she took now, she must end by forfeiting someone's good opinion. Hardy's first, well, she could get over that, but Ted's, Catherine's, Wyndham's? If he came to know everything, it was there in that last possibility that she suffered most. Half-past six. She had given up Wyndham and her belief in psychical prophecy, and was trying to find relief from unpleasant reflections in a book, when Wyndham actually appeared. He came in with the confident smile of the friend sure of a welcome at all hours. Forgive my calling at this unholy time. I knew if I came earlier I should find you surrounded by an admiring crowd. I wanted to see you alone. Quite right. I am always at home to friends. They dropped into one of those trivial dialogues which were Audrey's despair in her intercourse with Wyndham. Suddenly his tone changed. He took up London legends. As you've already guessed, my egregious vanity brings me here. I don't know whether you've had time to look at the thing. I sat up to finish it last night. Indeed. 
What did you think of it? Don't ask me. I didn't criticize. Sympathy comes first. Excuse me, it doesn't. Criticism comes first with all of us. Sympathy comes last of all, when we know the whole of life and understand it. What would my poor little opinion be worth? Everything. A really unbiased judgment is the rarest thing in the world, and there's always a charm about naive criticism. I couldn't put the book down. Can I say more? Yes, of course you can say more. You can tell me which legend you disliked least. You can criticize my hero's conduct and find fault with my heroine's manners. You can object to my plot, pick holes in my style. No, thank goodness, you can't do that. But you can take exception to my morality. She sat silent, waiting for her cue, and trying to collect her thoughts, which were fluttering all abroad in generalities. He went on with a touch of bitterness in his voice. I thought so. It's the old stumbling block, my morality. If it hadn't been for that, you would have told me, wouldn't you? That my figures breathe and move, that every touch is true to life. But you daren't. You are afraid of reality. Facts are so immoral. It would be impossible to describe the accent of scorn which Wyndham threw into this last word. I thought your book very clever, in spite of the facts. Facts or no facts, you'd rather have your beliefs, wouldn't you? No, no, I lost them all long ago, cried Audrey indignantly. I don't mean the old vulgar dogmas, of course, but the dear little ideals that shed such a rosy light on things in general, you know. Ah, that's what you want. And when an artist paints the real thing for you, you say, Thank you, yes, it's very clever, I see, but I prefer the pretty magic lantern views and the limelight of life. Not at all. I've much too great a regard for truth. I know. You're always looking for truth with a capital T, but when it comes to the point, you'd rather have two miserable little half-truths than one honest whole truth about anything. That's why you disliked my book. I didn't. Oh, yes, you did. What you disliked about it was this. It made you see men and women not as you imagined them, but as God made them. You saw, that is, the naked human soul, stripped of the clumsy draperies that Puritanism wraps round it. You saw below the surface, below the top-dressing of education, below the solid layer of traditional morality, deep down to the primitive passions, the fire of the clay we're all made of. You saw love and hate, forces which are older than all religions and all laws, older than man and woman, and which make men and women what they are. And they seem to you not commonplaces which they are, but something worse. You don't know that these facts are the stuff of art because they are the stuff of nature, that it takes multitudes of such facts, not just one or two picked out because of their moral beauty, for you purists believe in the beauty of morality as well as in the immorality of beauty, to make up a faithful picture of life. And you shuddered, didn't you? As you laid down the book, you sat up half the night to read, and you said it was ugly, revolting. You couldn't see any perfect characters in it only character in the making, only wretched men and women acting according to certain disagreeable laws, which are none the less immutable because one half of the world professes to ignore their existence. You said, take away the whole world of nature, take away logic and science and art, but leave me, leave me my ideals, isn't that it? The torrent of his rhetoric swept her away, she knew not whither, but in his last words she had caught her cue. If she was ever to be an influence in Wyndham's life, encouraging, inspiring his best work, she must not suffer him to speak lightly of ideals. 
it seemed to her that her methods with ted were crude compared with her management of wyndham oh don't don't it's dreadful but you are right i can't live without ideals all the great artists had them you have them yourself or at least you had them i don't know what to think about your book i can't think i can only feel and i read between the lines surely you feel with me that there's nothing worth living for except morality surely you believe in purity and goodness her face was flushed her hands were clasped tightly together in her intensity so strong was the illusion her manner produced that for one second wyndham could have been convinced of her absolute sincerity not long no not long afterwards her words were to come back to him with irony morality i have the greatest respect for it but after all its rules only mark off one little corner from the plane of life out there in the open are the fine landscapes and the great high roads of thought and if you are to travel at all you must go by those ways there's dust on them and there's mud plenty of mud but there are no others i would be very careful where i put my feet though i don't like muddy boots i dare say not who does but the traveller is not always thinking about his boots don't let's talk about boots she made a little movement with her mouth simulating disgust your own metaphor but never mind a propos de bottes i should like he broke off and added in a deep hieratic voice to the pure all things are pure but to the puritan most things are impure i wish i could make you see that but it's a large subject and besides i want to talk about you me yes you with all your beliefs there was a time if i'm not much mistaken when you were pleased to doubt the existence of your charming self she looked up with a smile of pleasure and of perfect comprehension he could hardly have said anything more delicately caressing to her self-love it seemed then that every word she had uttered in his hearing had been weighed and treasured up she could hardly be supposed to know that this power of noticing and preserving such little personal details was one of the functions of the literary organism if a woman like miss fraser had been flattered by it what must have been its effect on the susceptible audrey so you remember that too she said softly yes it impressed me at the time now i know you better i don't wonder at it it's the fault of your very lovely and feminine idealism but you seem to me to have hardly any hold on the fact of existence to be unable to realize it if i could only give you the sense of life make you feel the movement the passion the drama of it my books have a little of that they've got the right atmosphere the smell of life but never mind my books i don't want you to have another literary craze i beg your pardon i mean phase you seem to have had an artistic one lately he rose to go i've always cared for the great things of life said she ah yes the great things stamped with other people's approval i want you to love life itself so that you may be yourself and feel yourself being her whole nature responded as the strings of the violin to the bow of the master life was one of those words which specially stirred her sensibility as wyndham had foreseen it was a word to conjure with and now as he had willed the idea of it possessed her she repeated mechanically life to love life for itself and first you must know life in order to love it she sighed slightly as if she had taken in a little more breath to say good-bye the ideal was flown she had received the stamp of wyndham's spirit as if it had been iron upon wax it was her way of being herself and feeling herself being the same evening she wrote a little note to ted that ran thus 
dearest ted i have been thinking it all over ever since yesterday and i am convinced that my only right course is to break off our engagement it has all been a mistake mine and yours why should we not recognize it instead of each persisting in making the other miserable i release you from your promise to me and will always remain very affectionately yours audrey craven she had just sent the note to the post when a servant came in with a telegram it was from hardy announcing his arrival at queenstown and she had trusted to her engagement to ted for protection against vincent's claim if she had only waited End of chapter 14 Recording by Expatria in Bangor, Maine